Masechet Ketubot, Daf Chaf. We continue our discussion about verifying signatures on documents. And we're going to move later on into oral testimony if someone wrote notes at a time uh, when they witnessed something and then many years later they forgot themselves what exactly happened. Are they allowed to refer to their notes? So it's kind of in between of uh, written versus oral. Uh, testimony. We begin with the Braita Tenora Banan Shednaim Hatumim Alashtad Umetu Bao Shenaim in Ashuk Vamruya Danu Sheketavia Dam Hu Aval Anusim Hayu Ketanim Hayu Pesule Aedu Tayu Hare Elu Ne Emanim. We have a case where two people signed a contract, but those original two witnesses died. And then two other people came from the marketplace and they said, yep, we recognize this handwriting. That is, in fact, the handwriting of those two witnesses. Um, But then they add that we know that when the witnesses signed the document, they were under duress or they were minors or they were invalid for any other reason. These, they are believed. Uh, so this is parallel to the case we've seen before, where the witnesses themselves say, yes, we signed this, but we were under duress. Here, someone else uh, says they signed it, but they were under duress. And they are believed because, again, these very witnesses are the ones that are verifying the document, making it kosher. Uh, making it a valid document, and therefore we must believe them when they say, actually, even though they are the ones that, that signed it, it's true, they, these are not forged, sig- they are real signatures, but it's still they are still invalid, so we have to trust them because we rely on their verification in the first place. But, However, if there are witnesses that this is their, there are other witnesses that this, these signatures belong to the people that signed it, um, and then another set of witnesses came and said, yeah, but they were under duress. Then we were able to independently verify these signatures. So we are not dependent on these two next witnesses that say it's under duress. So we will not believe them. Or if the betting itself is able to compare these, the signatures here with a different contract, a different contract. And here we have something new that's interesting that the Gemara will um, analyze. From they compare the contract that's under discussion with the prior contract that already underwent a challenge and was deemed valid in court. It sounds like specifically if there was a challenge and they had to go through a process, then they can be uh, and they end up showing that that comparative document is valid. Then only then can it be used as a model. If it never was challenged, then they're not, people are, or they, we can't assume that they were as careful in checking the signatures. Uh, so in those cases where we can independently verify the signatures, um, then the witnesses that say that it was under duress are not going to be believed. Okay, good. Oh, now we ask, Are you telling me that 
in the second case uh, where we don't accept the witnesses because we're able to independently verify it. So that means that we forget that we don't we assume it's not under us. That means it's a valid document and we can use it and allow the lender to collect money based on it like any other valid document. Why don't we call this uh, two versus two? You have two witnesses that said these are their, these are the, uh, in fact, their signatures, so they validated it. But then another two that say, but they were under duress. And usually when you have contradictory witnesses, two against two, then you have to worry that uh, the contradictory witnesses are correct. And you can't just assume that the first ones that came are right and the second ones are wrong. And therefore, we, that the second one should um, at least put enough doubt in our minds that we say, you know what, you cannot use this uh, document to collect money. You have to bring better proof. And here, this document has two against two. Uh, so it may 50% that is in, an invalid document. So we should not permit it. Okay, that's the question. Rav Sheshat has an answer that we witnesses that contradict the first set of witnesses is the beginning is has a similarity to uh is when the second set of witnesses don't simply contradict the content of the first set of witnesses but rather the second set of witnesses come and say the first set of witnesses are invalid themselves because they weren't there at that time they were in a different city at that time and could not possibly have even been witnesses that's a stronger uh, contradiction. It's not simply a contradiction of the content, but an invalidation of the witnesses themselves, in which those witnesses, if they're found to be Edim Zomamin, will get the very same punishment that they tried to give. So Rav Sheshat says there is a similarity. Hachasha is the first stage in Hazama. And what's his point? The commonality, there are diff many differences between the two types of contradictions, but the uh, similarity is that just like Edim, you cannot be, uh, you cannot, uh, the second set of witnesses cannot say the first set of witnesses are Edim Zomamin, they cannot, not, cannot convict that uh, witnesses as Edim Zoramin, unless they uh, they are present there. Uh, be, the reason is because by saying, hey, you guys are Edim Zoramin, I am actually going to make you liable to punishment. And in general, whenever you have a case where I am uh, bringing you to court that you could be liable, that the, the Betin is not allowed to hear the testimony of only one side without the presence of the other side. And uh, so therefore, for Edim so for Edut, that two witnesses are Edeh Hazama, you need them to be present. Hirav Sheshat's point is, Kach en Machishin Tadim That point is also true regarding contradictory testimony, even if I'm not talking about them, but rather the content of what they said. I cannot contradict them unless they are present. In this case, the original witnesses that signed on the document have died. And so there's no possibility of them being present. And that's why, in this case, I do not consider it two versus two, uh, but rather the original two witnesses whose signatures have been verified. 
So, uh, therefore, even though they're dead, it's like they are here in court, uh, just by their, their signatures on the document is, uh, is valid testimony. And since they are not around to be contradicted, therefore, we do not, uh, uh, we do not take into consideration the, the contradiction. And that's why we validate the document. And yes, you can use it to collect in court even though they were contradicted by others. Good. Amalei Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman disagrees with Rav Sheshat and says, no, we are not going to be able to use this document. It is, in fact, uh, it is in fact uh, one that's contradicted. And here's his logic. What are you saying? That oh, we want them to be here? Why, why do you need someone to be? How come you need the other litigant to be there if you're going to bring an accusation? Because you have to give them an opportunity to say, no, it's not true, to give their defense. Now, let's say they were here. Even if they were, those witnesses uh, were here, and they would um, uh, push back against the second set of witnesses and contradict them, right? And the second one, the first, second one says, oh, you were minors. And they say, no, no, we weren't minors. Uh, what would we do? We would consider the contradiction to be valid, and we would invalidate the contract. And we would not pay attention to the protests of the first set of witnesses. We would deem it contradictory testimony and we would invalidate the contract, even if they were here. So now because they're dead and they're not here, the only other possibility is that even if they were here, maybe they would actually admit and say, oh, you're right, we were minors. So so now we should believe them because they're dead and they're not here. We should give them more uh, credibility than if they were here. If they were actually here, then they either they would admit and say the second set of witnesses is right, are right and therefore the contract is invalid. Or they would contradict it and still the second set of witnesses would be believed to say that the contract is invalid. And so therefore there's no need for the, second, for the first set of witnesses to be present, it doesn't matter. The second set of witnesses successfully contradict them. Nachman says, even if they're not here, and the first set of witnesses are dead, we take two against two, and therefore the second two counteract the testimony of the first two. The, uh, uh, the contract is not valid, and so if we have no valid contract, we have to go by the chazaka, wherever the money is. If it's a loan document, and so the borrower has the money, the borrower does not need to pay back um, because the second set of witnesses said that the, this, this document is not valid, and so we don't believe it. Okay. What's another example where we have uh, in un uncertain testimony and we apply this principle of leaving the money where it is? Uh, this happened once with the money of a guy his, who was called Bar Shatya. That wasn't necessarily his name. Uh, Shatya means Shote. He, he was uh, in, in, incompetent. Uh, Bar is not the son of an incompetent. It's like uh, when you say Bar Mitzvah. It means he is one who is in the category of Shote. 
The Balshatya Zabenikse. One time this guy Balshatya sold property. A two betre amrekeshu shotezaben. Vatu betre amrekehu shekeshu halim zaben. And uh, uh, he was not always shote. He was like bipolar or something. And sometimes he was competent and sometimes he was not competent. Two witnesses said when he made that sale, he was not competent. Therefore, it's not a valid sale. Uh, the property stays in the hands of Balshatya. And other people say, no, when he was well, he made the sale, and therefore it is a good sale, and it goes to the buyer. What, would, what do we do? Since you have two against two, therefore they cancel each other out, and we, since we know that it did belong to Barashatya originally, therefore we, have, we leave the land in the, in the hands of Barashatya, and uh, the, the, um, the buyer would have to bring, bring further proof that the sale was valid. But this is only true if we know that the land once belonged to the father of Barashatya, so we know that it was originally for sure his. But if it didn't belong to his father's, if his father, if Barashatya himself uh, acquired it, well, then we don't know what state he acquired it in either. And maybe he was not of sane mind when he bought it, and also not of sane mind when he sold it, in which case it was never his to, to begin with to sell. Um, in that case, we, uh, since uh, we, there's no, he doesn't have a chazaka, uh, so then we allow the buyer to keep it, because the buyer is sitting on it now, and therefore we can skip over Barashatya and whoever, we don't know who the previous person was, and so that, therefore, the buyer can keep it um, if Barashatya cannot show that he has a chazaka from his father. Good, so that's where we see that principle of two against two. Amar Rabbi Abhu, En mizimin etaedim ela bifnehem, umachishim etaedim shelo bifnehem. Back to this basic halacha of whether the present people, uh, the original witnesses have to be there or not. In this case, Rav Nachman said they don't have to be there because it doesn't matter. Even if they were here, it wouldn't matter. But in general cases, what is the law? You cannot... Uh, call pe- call witnesses edim zomamin unless they are present. You can't just you know imp- uh, impose that kind of punishment without them present. But to contradict the content of their testimony, that can in fact be done not in their presence. Unlike the connection we said before. However, if I do call these two witnesses, Edim Soamin, they couldn't have been there on the day of that murder. They were with me in the bowl game in Boston. Uh, even though I can't, uh, we can't punish them as Edim Zomamin if they are not present. Nevertheless, my saying that they couldn't have been there does rise to the level of contradiction. And so therefore, they, you know, the, the person that they accused of being a murderer will not be convicted. Uh, based on that, based on their testimony, uh, even though they can't be deemed a dumzamin because they're not here. And so it will just go down to the level of edut um, mukheshet, that the content is uh, brought under suspicion, um, and therefore their, the content of their testimony will not be valid. All right, and so now the Braita that we began with, we're going to quote a snippet of it. Mm-hmm. 
Beruzak Bebetin and Neeman. If these witnesses came and said um, that the original witnesses were uh, under duress or minors, if we can independently verify the content, uh, the signatures, then we don't believe them. Now, how do you independently verify? Either that there are witnesses that said we recognize the signatures, or the Betin compares it to another contract that was challenged and deemed valid. Okay, so we're going to analyze that. Only if the, the one that with the model document was challenged and deemed valid, then we can believe it. But if not, if it was never challenged, it was just used in court and no one challenged the signatures and we didn't go through that process of, uh, of uh, uh, deeply validating it, then even though this was upheld in court, that, that, that even though that previous contract was used, since it was not challenged, we can't be 100% sure and use it as a model. This inference supports the statement. said the same thing that you cannot use a document as a model unless it was challenged and validated. Um, I guess uh, perhaps Rabbi Aseh did not have that Braita or had a, a different source, and so he said it himself. Okay, adding another possibility uh, of a document that you can use as a model. And it says if you just have one document that that was uh, that was unchallenged, that's not gonna be enough. But if you have two of them, uh, then that would be good. Uh, so you cannot use a document for validation unless you have two kituvas or two bills of sale for a field. And if it's, it's a, if it's a bills of sales for a field, it has to be that we have the bill of sale and the buyer remained on the land for three years without any contest. In that case, we, and, and, and we see that it's the same witnesses and the witnesses and the signatures match up. In that case, we can assume that the original document is valid. In other words, even if it didn't go through a process of being challenged and validated, the fact that no one came to say, hey, that's my field, uh, means that the original document of sale was indeed valid. And if it was valid, that means the witnesses that signed on it didn't forge the document, but they were really there and they validated it. So therefore we know, we can presume that they in fact did sign it. It was a kosher uh, a contract and therefore we can use them as a model. That's true, but only if we found those bills of sale or those tukitubot from another party. But if it's the litigant himself that says, oh yeah, I have this, uh, you know, IOU signed by Mr. A and Mr. B. I also have two other bills of sale that the same two people uh, signed. Then that cannot be, we cannot trust them, right? Maybe this uh, litigant is the, the one who uh, um, arranged for those other, uh, those other false, falsely signed documents as well. Okay, how come we don't believe 
the documents. We can't use them if the litigant himself produced them because maybe he forged the signatures. Wait a second. Wait a second. Even if they came from another third party, maybe the litigant went to that third party's house one day, happened to be in the guy's office, saw these two documents, looked at them, memorized the signature, and then he went and um, forged their signatures when he went back home. So what's the difference if he had it in his hand or if it was in a third party? And the answer is, No, people cannot accurately represent, uh, reproduce signatures just based on memory. Right? So even experts in forgery, they need the original to be there and they can practice a few times and they can look at it and trace it and uh, be able to reproduce it, but they have to have it in front of them. If they just went and saw it one time, uh, then uh, they're not going to be able to reproduce it accurately enough. Even like artists, right? they need to see the model that they're uh, painting in front of them in order to make a good rendering. Okay, Tenor Banan, new topic. Kotev Adam Aidut al Hashtar If a person saw some testimony about something and he wrote uh, um, he wrote some notes for himself. He wrote his testimony in a document. Um, and he, and then after many years, uh, the qu- question came up, what had, did this happen? Did this not? And he comes and testifies based on what he wrote. And since it was a long time after, he doesn't actually ac- exactly remember exa- what happened. Can he use the, those notes? Um, we see this nowadays sometimes when there's congressional hearings and people will uh, take notes of a meeting immediately after and, uh, and then they'll testify based on the, those notes that they took immediately after a meeting or uh, a, a cop who takes notes uh, about a traffic stop or something and he comes to court maybe a year later but he's not going to remember every traffic stop he made but he'll have notes about what happened. Uh, so is this valid? Uh, in general, oral testimony has to be done based on one's own memory, not just based on something that they read. So the Baraita says, yes, it is valid. Ravuna says it is valid, but that's only if he uh, also remembers it. So in other words, he's, he's using the written document that he had to jog his memory, to fill in some of the details, but the person does remember that uh, I saw the murder or I was present at this, um, uh, when this person signed the contract. So he remembers it in general, but the exact details he wrote down so he can use, he can use the written word to jog his memory as long as he still remembers. Good. is more lenient and said, even if he doesn't remember it on his own, right? He really does not remember these details, um, and he's basing it mostly on the written document. That's still valid because he knows he, he knows he was there. He knows he wrote it, um, but uh, since he wrote it, and this is his own his own his own writing that's uh, helping him remember what was there. That's fine also, even if he wouldn't independently remember it. So Rabbi says, based on Biochanan, if a person is allowed to uh, remind himself of what he saw based on something, he, uh, notes that he wrote, 
it would be the same if the, the, he had a friend there who reminds him of what happened. So if you have two witnesses, they come, they were together, they saw a certain incident happen together. Many years later, one remembers it in detail, one does not remember it. So if one witness tells the other, listen, we were here together, and this is what we saw A, B, and C happen. And the other, so the other one says, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess we were there. And, you know, if you say so, um, is that valid? And according to the B'yohanan, yes, it would be valid. Just like he can jog his memory based on a written document, so too uh, a fellow witness can also help him jog his memory. Good. That's the B'yohanan. But now the rabbis have a question. What about the litigant himself? The litigant comes and says, you know, the guy who, uh, who lent money out. And he says, hey, you too, you were there. You saw when I lent this guy money. Don't you remember? It was $1,000. I did it in this and such and such place. I told them they have to pay it back by this date. All right? And the guy, the witness is like, oh, we don't remember. Can they rely on the words of the litigant to remind them and then testify based on that? They're not totally lying because... They were, in fact, there, but they are relying on the litigant to remind them of the details. So that's not quite independent. It's not the same as their own notes. That's the question. Rav Chaviva Amar, Afilu says, yes, even the litigant himself can remind them. And I guess they'll have some idea that this is true. Morbere says, no, you can't rely on the litigant. Uh, it's likely that the litigant is lying, exaggerating, putting words in the mouth of the witnesses. This is no good. And that is the final halacha, that you can't rely on the words of a litigant themselves. It has to be based on independent notes or the other witness. There is an exception, however, if the... Um, if the, the witness is a Torah scholar himself, then he can listen to the uh, litigant and say, oh yeah, you're right, thank you for reminding me of what happened, and then the Torah scholar can be a witness, if, even if his memory was jogged by the litigant. Because we assume that since he's a Torah scholar, he's not going to just repeat something that's not true. He's going to really make sure that in fact was true, that he does remember the details uh, to enough of an extent that even if he's using, relying on the litigant to jog his memory, he's not going to just repeat it if he didn't know, remember that it was in fact true. That's how she explains it. Uh, Rav Haigaon says, no, no, it means the litigant is a Torah scholar, so therefore we can, we can presume that the litigant, since he's a Torah scholar, will not relate to the witness something that isn't true. All right, one way or the other, we actually have a story where both the litigant and the witnesses are Torah scholars and where they do such an arrangement. Rav Asher was a witness and he knew something about a case uh, involving Rav Kahana. So Rav Kahana went to Rav Asher and says, you know, you were, you were a witness when this thing happened. Do you remember the testimony? Rav Asher says, sorry, I don't remember. So Rav Kahana is starting to jog his memory and says, don't you remember you were there on that date and I lent money to someone and this is the amount? Rav Asher says, sorry, I really don't remember that. But after some days, Avashe 
Remember, yeah, oh, yes, that's right. I remember being there, and now, now I got it. Asid Leh so Rav Ashed did, in fact, testify on behalf of Rav Kahana to support that story. Haziel Rav Kahana dehava mechasem. Rav Ashed saw that Rav Kahana was hesitant and says, wait a second, I, can't, I don't want to rely on your testimony. I'm the one that reminded you of it. You didn't remember yourself, so it's not valid testimony. Even though it's to my benefit, I don't want to take money based on invalid testimony. Don't worry. Do you think I'm relying on you? I, uh, once you told me that, then I uh, uh, made an effort and it came up to my mind and I, in fact, did remember it myself. And so you have, here you see a case where the even though it's the litigant himself, who is reminding Rav Asher of what happened, because Rav Asher is a Torah scholar, he wouldn't go ahead and, and testify only based on what the litigant says. He'll make sure that he really remembered the details himself uh, afterwards and then on, testify only on, only based on that. Okay, good. Now, Tenan Hatam, we're going to go into a little detour um, to Mishnah and Masechet Aholot about Tuman Tahara. Uh, the relevance is going to be the question of how long do people generally remember something that happened from many, many decades ago? I was recently 60 Minutes on uh, who, uh, who, gave, who gave information about Anne Frank. And so they hired an FBI investigator who, usually, who deals with cold cases from like, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. But this time he had to deal with a case from over 70 years ago where you don't have anybody around who still remembers what happened. So how long can you assume someone will remember testimony? So Tenan Hatam. If you find a mound of dirt, uh, a mound of dirt, it could just be a natural mound of dirt, or it could indicate that there's a grave underneath and a bitameh. So how do you know which ones are which? So if it's near the city or near a road, well, being near a road or near a city makes it more likely that someone uh, was walking along there and someone died, they had to bury them. Uh, and whether it's new or old, if it's near a city, it doesn't matter, it's going to be Tameh. However, if it's far away, it makes it less likely that someone went there to bury. Then it depends on the age. If it's relatively new, so if it's relatively new, and in fact someone was buried there, then we would assume someone remembers. It happened just, you know, uh, last week or a few years ago. We'll ask around. Someone should remember that someone was buried there. If no one remembers, then most likely it's Tahor. However, if it's old, then we, there's no, the fact that no one remembers is not a proof. It's happened, you know, 100, 200 years ago, and so no one's going to remember anyway. So therefore, um, if it's old, we have to assume that it's Tameh. Uh, so the point is that we're going to assume it's Tahor only if it's far away from the road and from the city, and it's relatively new. So that makes it very unlikely that someone went far away and no one remembers, uh, but in all other three cases, uh, whether it's only um, close by or only old or both close by and old, in all those cases will be Tameh. Okay, now 
The Mishnah asks, Ezohi Kedoba, what's the definition of close? Answer is Chamishim Amma, 50 Amot, that's as far as people usually going to go off the road if they need to bury. So why would they go even further than that? And how old, what's the definition of old? Shishim Shana, 60 years. So we see on average, someone, something can be remembered by a community for 60 years. There's people around, if they were, you know, 15, 20 years old, when something happened, they'll remember, they live, you know, 70 years or so. Uh, after that, it's unlikely that there's any, gonna, anyone's going to remember it. And so, therefore, within 60 years, um, uh, you, we can, it's more likely that it is tahor. After, if it's older than that, then more likely it's tameh. Dibre de bimeir. All that's bimeir. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Kedoba she'en Kedoba ha'menu. Yeshana she'en Adam Zohra. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, there's no, uh, uh, no, no objective uh, amount, but rather close means that there's nothing closer than it. So that um, even if it's uh, more than 50 amot, but that's the closest mound, so there's nothing else around, so we have to assume that that would be, that could be the uh, grave. On the other hand, if it's uh, a lot that are closer, that are 10 amot away, and then there's some that are 20 amot away, so the ones 20 amot away are already not close, because um, why would someone go to a faraway place? They could have gone to a closer uh, mound and used that to bury. Uh, so and also the the time is based on also a uh, uh, subjective that there's no one that remembers it. If there's no one around that remembers it, then it's uh, that remembers what happened. Then that already means old. Um, it could be that there's a lot of old people around, more than sixty. Maybe there's young people around that are not, no one that's, that's older than fifty. So um, it uh, it's all subjective. Okay, now my ear or my derech. We're going to analyze the Mishnah a little first, right? There's no, there is no Tamud Bavlit to Masechet Ahalot. So this is going to be the analysis here, even though it's not directly relevant to our topic. Uh, so what is this? Well, what's the difference if it's in a city or a path? Wait, if it's actually on, uh, in, near the city or near a path, any city or any path, so just because we find some mound nearby, some path or some city, we should assume it's Tameh. In a different case, in Eretz Yisrael, Rashakish said that there was a certain area of, of uh, Eretz Yisrael that they had a doubt that perhaps it's Tameh, but they found some pretext and they said, no, it has to be Tahar. Because we don't want to give Kohanim and other people who care about Tahara a hard time that they have to go around everything. Uh, so therefore, we're going to try to, as much as we can, presume that something is tahar. So why should we, we just presume that any mound near any city is going to be tameh? Rather, the Bizarra explains that when we say the city or, or, or path, it means one that's near a cemetery. Uh, in that case, we presume that uh, what happened is, so why is that more likely that a mound near a, cem- near a cemetery or a path on the way to a cemetery is more likely to be Tameh. Here's the reason. Well, the road is easier to explain. Since it's a road towards the cemetery, it happens that sometimes someone's carrying a body towards uh, to bury it, but uh, it ha- might, might be on Friday afternoon and it's getting late and they realize they won't be able to make it to the cemetery and come back before Shabbat and they have to bury the person on the side of the road and therefore the side of the road towards the cemetery also was likely to have bodies and therefore a mound in that area 
we assume is Tameh. Ela ilsumuchal beta kebrot kol hid le beta kebrot azay. But if it's a, talking about a city that's near a cemetery, well then, in any case, you would always bring it to the cemetery. Uh, it's, it's nearby, and so you can go and get back. Why would people be burying things near the city, around the city, if they could just go to the cemetery that's nearby? Uh, this is a, a little bit gory. Uh, this is because sometimes women who have a stillborn, they won't go all the way to the cemetery uh, but, uh, because uh, stillborns don't need an official uh, funeral, so they're not going to have uh, you know, everybody come out and the whole thing. So therefore, they may uh, just bury their uh, babies um, nearby the city, and also people who have uh, um, some kind of uh, skin affliction uh, that causes their limbs to fall off. I told you it's going to be gory. So they also don't need an official burial. They're not going to go all the way to the cemetery, but they but they still need burial, and they still do, do cause tumah. So they're going to bury it nearby the city. So that's why we have to worry. Now, when, where do they bury these things? A woman who has a stillborn, she would go 50 amot by herself. It could also be a, a kind of shame. They don't want to make a whole big deal and go to the cemetery. So she may go herself and bury her stillborn. But the, she's, she's only going to venture out of the city 50 amot. If it's more than 50, then she's going to want to take other people, someone else with her. To, uh, to not be alone for protection. Once she has someone else with her, then she will go to the cemetery. So therefore, there's less reason to worry that a mound outside of 50 amot from the city is Tameh, but if it's closer to 50 amot, maybe she went herself and therefore didn't go to the cemetery and buried something there. But we uphold the principle that we said before that just for any reason, we're not going to assume that there is Tum'ah, especially in Eretz Yisrael, where we want to make sure that Kohanim can walk freely. It's really only in the case where there's much more likelihood, like if it's near a cemetery, on the way to a cemetery, uh, only then would we assume that there is Tum'ah there. All right, that's the discussion of the Mishnah. Here's the relevance to us. According to Bimeir, who did say that it's an objective standard, it's 50 amot and 60 years. If someone has testimony within 60 years, it could be that they remembered it. So we'll trust their testimony. If more than 60 years have passed, we have to assume that they did not, do not remember their testimony, and therefore we cannot accept oral testimony um, uh, that's more than 60 years old. That's it, just a cold case, and uh, and uh, testimony is no good anymore. Velohi, uh, so even though Rav Chista says it's, that's what it sounds like from Rabbi Meir, the Gemara rejects that inference. In that case where... Uh, so we're expecting people, passers-by, to say, do you remember that there was a, a headstone here? Do you remember that someone buried someone in this mound? Now, in that case, it was not imposed upon any particular person to remember that. We're just wondering if maybe someone who passed by happened to remember that there was a grave in this spot or not. People don't remember random facts for that long. But... If it was an if it was a particular event where you were the I asked you to be the witness for this uh, uh, for this loan or you witnessed a crime or you were witnesses at a 
at a wedding um, and you were appointed, hey, can you be the witnesses and, and watch this thing? Since it is imposed upon you to remember, then you we can expect someone to remember even more than 60 years. So therefore, in a random thing, you know, we can't assume 60 years. So that Mishnah is not, in Ahalot is not relevant to us. Uh, we are assuming that this, these people were, they were appointed to remember and therefore we can accept their, their testimony even more than 60 years. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen.